Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. And I mean, am I allowed to say welcome back to... I mean, it's weird, I guess, to say that to the two of us, but we are recording in person for the first time since, I don't know, the end of September, something like that. Feels like a lifetime ago. That's right. We're at my home now. Luke's come over. We're having a bit of a double feature, watching both movies for the podcast this week, the first of which, um, boy, have, have we got a doozy for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. This one's... This this one's pretty special, and I guess we kind of inadvertently teed it up. I mean, the movie's not special. It's terrible, but it's like the occasion is uh, is special because, I mean, should we just get right to it? I mean, this is, this is not? the new movie by... Uh, acclaimed distinguished filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi, who uh, is somebody that we have—I don't know—I I think we've talked about her on this podcast and her work. I think we are the we are the leading Alexandra Pelosi correspondents. The and only. The, and yeah, I mean the only. I mean we have. We've seen the early stuff. We've seen Journeys with George. We've seen, <laughs> I can't remember the names of the other ones, but we've seen those too. And this one, I mean, I don't know. I feel like one of those people who like, you know, saw Oasis at one of their like early shows or something, or, you know, saw saw the Beatles at the Hamburg Club, you know, and then and then got to see, you know, the, the Ascent. I feel like we've entered a new era of Alexandra Pelosi. New documentary on HBO. I mean, they're all, they've all been on HBO, so who knows, maybe this one will disappear into the ether like all the other ones. But I mean, just the experience of of watching this one was incredible for us because the last film by Alexandra Pelosi that we talked about, which was only just in the last, you know, uh, few months, was one that... You know, we knew it existed because there's like a tag on IMDb and Wikipedia for it. But I'm not lying when I say that we we contacted through the Toronto Public Library, every public library system in North America to try to find a copy of this movie. You know, we're willing to pay for it, obviously. And we could not find it anywhere. You know, our, our fans, you know, all of you, we asked, you delivered. Uh, Michael and Us Nation rose up and, you know, an epic uh, continent-wide, worldwide search for a Again, I'm for- uh, it's called Diary of a Political Tourist. <laughs> Diary of a Political Tourist. Um, there was one copy of it in the, a university library somewhere. We couldn't get that one because what happened was everybody, including us, went for that one at once. And I don't know what the librarians thought, but couldn't get that one. One of our listeners uh, emailed the the Alexandra Pelosi Film Company, and someone who I'm we're pretty sure was her husband answered, and uh, we were able to pay for for the film. So again, thank you to the person who uh, who did that. But for for those reasons and more, uh, this is a big day for us. To reestablish the premise of Alexandra Pelosi, she is the youngest daughter of the outgoing Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi. For 20 years, she has been making films for HBO, except I think one of them she made for Vice. So she's been doing this for a long time. Her films, she has extraordinary access. She interviews people from all over the political spectrum. Her first one, Journeys with George, was all about her time on George W. Bush's campaign bus. This is the level of access. And we've been fascinated by her for a while because nobody has ever talked about these films. Nobody has ever studied them they are stupefyingly awful. Well, just 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 banal. I mean, yeah. they they lack a perspective, really. I mean, they are the perspective of somebody whose you know family is deeply embedded in the political class, and that forms their entire worldview. So the perspective of these movies is just you know trading jokes with George Bush at a White House uh, dinner or something. You know, that's kind of the limit of it. And she has a couple where she like 
goes and talks to Trump voters or McCain voters from the other side of the aisle, working class folks, to foster conversations, to hear perspectives. But it, it always stops at that. There's never any suggestion of, well, what do, what do we do with the perspective that we've gained from this? Anyway, apologies to longtime listeners. Apologies to people who have heard us talk about Alexander Pelosi many times. I just wanted to reestablish the premise. But today... I mean, this is very exciting because this is the first time that we've watched an Alexander Pelosi movie in its moment. Uh, it just came out this week. It's all anyone is talking about. Well, actually, though, I, I said that these films, you know, never get talked about or never spoken about. But she's actually having a bit of a moment now because this one, I'm sure, has been talked about more than any film since Journeys with George. And it's because she was there at the U.S. Capitol filming on January 6th, 2021, when the Capitol riot took place. And so that footage was was shown during the January 6th hearings a couple months ago. Uh, she was in the news, and that footage forms basically the raison d'etre of this film, Pelosi in the House, which is a hagiographic portrait of her mother, Nancy Pelosi. Hey, Mom, why did you choose this life? I didn't really choose this life. It chose me. I put the picture of me and you there so that all my siblings can see I'm your favorite. For my entire adult life, I've been two steps behind you with this camera trying to keep up with you. I am a workhorse, not a show horse. I was born into a family that was fiercely patriotic and staunchly democratic. Politics was the life that we led. I have the high privilege as the first president to begin the State of the Union message with these words. Madam Speaker. So Pelosi in the House. For a long time, Alexandra Pelosi observer like myself, I found it interesting just charting her evolution because the the early stuff, the early Alexandra Pelosi movies are very much about her as this kind of like awkward outsider figure. You know, she's not quite politics. She's not quite the media, you know, in her campaign films. Like, I like talking about Alexandra Pelosi because it's like a parody of studying an auteur. <laughs> in, her, in her campaign films, it's always about like, well, isn't it crazy that I'm, you know, she's, she always strikes a bit of an irreverent pose, badgering the candidates with stupid questions, like like self-consciously stupid questions. You know, she's almost like Michael Moorish at times in the early ones, but without his kind of like righteous perspective. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, she she employs that technique that Michael Moore often actually used quite effectively, which was a kind of deliberately earnest uh, questioning used as a device. You know, she she sort of attempts to mimic that, but, you know, is unable to get anything like the same result. So in this one, it is very sober compared to the early ones. And this is her, I think, like fully claiming her birthright. This is like a portrait that you would see hung up in. Imagine if Nancy Pelosi was president and she had a presidential library. This is the cinematic equivalent of the portrait you would see going in. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, in some ways, this movie is difficult to talk about. I'm actually, you know, I, I was worried while we were watching it, you know, how much are we going to have to say about this? Because the challenge of a film like this is that there's not really anything to deconstruct. There's no subtext. There's no tension. You know, this film is a pure, I mean, it's exactly what you expect. You know, the, the daughter of a famous politician makes a movie about them. It is a pure hagiography that portrays Nancy Pelosi as, I mean, someone who's enmeshed in politics, but is almost kind of just above politics, transcends them. I mean, is a person without flaw, who has just always sought to do good, 
who is always seeking to pursue the maximum amount of progress that is available at any given time, progress very nebulously defined. Or we do, we do get one occasion in the movie where Pelosi is, uh, is, is advising uh, Joe Biden over the phone in one of the many vaguely or in some cases just quite obviously staged, you know, quote unquote, candid conversations uh, that appears throughout this movie as a regular device. Um, we see her advising Joe Biden, you know, we have to be sure not to move too far to the left, you know, you know, and I say that as as a left-wing San Francisco liberal or whatever. Well, since we're cutting ahead to this moment, the other thing that I like about it, this is probably on the eve of the Democratic convention in 2020. The other thing I like that she says is, she's talking about healthcare specifically. The name Bernie Sanders goes unmentioned, but I, th- <laughs> I think I think that's the implication. She says, uh, we all share these values. We don't need any distrust. That was one of a couple of moments of sort of soft left bashing in this movie that I liked. But okay, before we get to the other moments, I'll just set the scene. The movie is awkwardly structured. It's two thirds a sort of career run through and then one third a fly on the wall, you are there, gimme shelter like documentary about the January 6th riot. Much of the film was shot over the course of years, I think quite casually, you know, probably with no particular purpose in mind, just Alexandra Pelosi with her mini DV camera following her mother um, at various functions at various times. So there's quite a bit of footage of Nancy Pelosi during significant moments of her career, none of it particularly revealing or insightful or, or compelling. Significant moments of her career, true, but I mean, there's really only like, I mean, before the January 6th stuff, which as you said, is maybe the last quarter or third of the movie. I mean, there's really just a few. I mean, there's a few kind of moments from the Bush president I mean, one of the other moments of left bashing that happens is when there's, you know, a scene of some protesters from Code Pink protesting outside the Pelosi residence in D.C. Well, this was a great moment because we see it from inside Nancy Pelosi's house. You see them from out the window. And Nancy Pelosi gets quite testy at this moment. She says something like, I believe that the Iraq war was one of the greatest mistakes this country has ever made. I voted against it. I've spoken out against it. She says words to the effect of, why are these war protesters outside my house? You know, and the protesters, their perspective is you have the power to impeach Bush. Well, one of them also notably has a sign. I mean, I, I believe we'd have to rewind the movie and, and check, which I am not going to do once was enough. But I'm pretty sure this is a, a post 2006, you know, incident that's being uh, documented. And one of the protesters has a sign that says Nancy stop funding the war. And I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing that's left out of the film. I mean, stuff like this is not even discussed. I mean, a different kind of film would have talked about this and, you know, still come down on Nancy Pelosi's side and said, you know, things are complicated, but at least would have acknowledged things like this. It doesn't acknowledge the fact that, you know, in 2006, in those midterms, the Democrats, I mean, basically got a windfall because of the anti-war vote. And then they weaponized people like Cindy Sheehan, whose son died in Iraq and who became a prominent anti-war protester and a critic of the administration. They rode that sentiment back to a majority in the House, and then they voted to continue funding the war. So stuff like that's not even mentioned. Yeah, it's strictly depicted in terms of these impatient protesters want her to just go to Congress tomorrow and impeach the president. And putting aside whether or not that was uh, politically advantageous, the film's perspective is simply how fucking dare these people? Do, do they not do they not realize that this is the first 
daughter of a congressman elected to the house of representatives oh yeah that's a, that's a milestone that's talked about in the first part of the movie which is that yeah nancy pelosi apparently was the first i was not aware of this but yeah the first daughter of a congressman to become a congresswoman but just as a final piece of scene setting i mean i mean just to give you all a sense of how hagiographic a portrait of nancy pelosi this is i mean it begins with what is i think it's fair to say, I think you'd agree, a pretty obviously scripted sequence where Alexandra Pelosi is following her mother. They're walking through uh, the halls of Congress. And, uh, you know, she says to uh, her mother, I've been trying to keep up with you for my entire life. You know, how do you do it? And then uh, Nancy Pelosi says something like, "Uh, I'm a workhorse, not a show horse, you know, and it's the kind of exchange that does not happen, you know, spontaneously, organically. And that's how the film begins. And that pretty much sets the tone for the rest of it. There's no tension or kind of uh, examination of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I suppose it's possible in another universe to imagine a film where the daughter of Nancy Pelosi actually has, you know, a perspective on Nancy Pelosi that's maybe still a a favorable one, but... um, Textured in some way. Textured, gives us kind of some insight, you know, what's it like to be the child of one of the most powerful political actors in the United States for the past quarter century, whatever. Uh, But this film is not that. I mean, it is so hagiographic, I think that it really... I mean, it overreaches as a hagiographic portrait because it can admit no flaw or tension. It's hooked on just a handful of these episodes. You know, there's a few minutes around, you know, stuff involving the Iraq War. There's the Affordable Care Act vote. There's a few midterm elections. But there's an awful lot that's left out and certainly anything that might appear controversial or portray Nancy Pelosi in anything but a maximally favorable light is just omitted entirely. I mean, this is about as pure as the genre of liberal or democratic democratic fan fiction can get. Alexandra Pelosi's movies are pretty consistent in the way that they introduce a premise, you know, often stated in their title, and then they don't go any further than that. They they fail to develop the premise beyond its, you know, initial statement. That's certainly true in this movie. I don't think one leaves this learning anything anything about Nancy Pelosi as a person or as a political figure that they didn't know going in. Um, the early section where it charts her history, you know, you find out that uh, her, her father was mayor of Baltimore, uh, then her brother was mayor of Baltimore, and then uh, she had a number of children, and then after after they were old enough, she ran herself. Sorry to interrupt, but there's just a great little sequence where she's talking about the lessons she learned from her political family, and I swear to God, the big takeaway that she shares is, what, what, what I learned was that you had to get out the vote to win elections. I wrote that down. I think it's a verbatim quote. That's the extent of what this movie offers us. It doesn't tell us why she got into politics. It doesn't tell us what she's fighting for. You know, whenever Nancy Pelosi's leadership was being challenged, the thing that she and her defenders would say is, she's great at the fundraising side of politics. And if this movie were better, it would lean into that side of her a little bit more. If this movie were better, it would say, okay, listen, she's not the great ideologue of the Senate. Um, but she's someone who can get stuff done. She can. She knows how to fundraise. She knows how to discipline people. But it doesn't do that because to do that would be inherently to admit um, it texture. Would, it, it would bring her down to earth and and show her as what she actually is, which is a you know a very experienced political operator. The film tries to do this in these really tortured sequences where we see Pelosi and some aides and you know some allies with just a piece of paper where they're tracking. I think it's the Affordable Care Act vote in the House, and she's a master at uh, knowing knowing where the votes are. I mean, it's she, just she's <laughs> got a Word document and it's got a couple of. There's one part of the Word document that says yays, and there's another part that says. 
just confirmed nays. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and the film really wants us to be impressed. It's like, you know, <laughs> masterful counting. And the thing is, you know, as Will says, I mean, if you showed Pelosi doing the actual candid version of this, where, you know, she's making phone calls and, you know, sums of money are being discussed and somebody is finding out that if they don't vote a certain way, they're going to lose their committee appointment and, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, there'd be a way to do that, which would show Pelosi as the, you know, experienced and, you know, at times quite impressive political operator that she's been. But again, the film just can't do that because it can't, as you say, admit any tension or sort of bring her down to earth. It can't show her as a as a secular earthly figure in any kind of way. One of the moments of, I wouldn't call it conflict, but one of the moments of slight drama is in 2018, when there are whispers of challenges to her leadership, there's a montage where we see various uh, House representatives being led into her office for various closed door meetings. And then Alexandra Pelosi asks her mother afterwards, so, uh, you know, what, what are the meetings about? Uh, what is it like? And Nancy says words to the effect of, oh, well, you know, it's just important to listen to people's perspectives. And uh, that's just what these meetings are about. It's about hearing what their concerns are. And I'm sorry, but if that's all the job was, then I could do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> by the way, that section of the movie, the challenge to her leadership section is another one that completely whiffs. It's one of those things she raises it just enough that it can only raise questions that the movie's not prepared to answer. Like Nancy Pelosi says, well, you know, there have always been challenges to my leadership. You know, I've, it's never been unanimous. I, there are certain pe- there are certain people who are, you know, just haters. And you want to hear just a little bit more about that. Like like in Alexandra Pelosi's conception of this, and I guess Nancy's as well. You know, they're just irrationally against. I mean, look at all the look at all the footage we've just seen. She's on the phone. She's raising money. Like, how how could anybody be against this unless they're unless they're just a hater? And I don't know. I'm, I'm saying it very sincerely. It's a missed opportunity. These kind of ideological differences, and she had challenges you know, some from the left, but also particularly from the right in the Democratic caucus. This is the stuff of drama. But you were right, by the way, that the movie, like, there's not a lot that happens in the movie. It's a career survey, and it pauses at, a career know, A career survey that, yeah, stops at, like, three three or four signposts. Some of which are not actual accomplishments. The, the Affordable Care Act is kind of the biggest and most substantive one, you know, which uh, you know, she describes as, you know, like, nothing will stop our attempt to pass affordable quality health care, which I, <laughs> I love. I love those kinds of turns of phrase from Democrats. But mostly, the, you know, there's just like these little episodes like the, uh, you know, Iraq war protesters or whatever that are glossed over. And, you know, something else that's important to say here, particularly since we've been following the cinema of Alexandra Pelosi for quite some time, is that, you know, her films have tended to feature, you know, voiceovers. Like she's the commentator. She's kind of the omniscient, you know, narrator. Sometimes she gets on camera. In the past, there have been moments like where, you know, George Bush will like take her camera or something like that. And then he'll interview her. This film does have voiceovers overs or you know you do you do hear her speak but it's a lot more sparing and when she does begin to play that kind of role in the film it's always to tee up her mother just to deliver some you know really generic platitude so for example when we get to the you know covid you know when we see a little montage of some you know stuff that's like all right now it's the covid portion of the movie <laughs> um you know you hear her ask so there's you know the, the great recession is upon us you know definitely like an organic uh, way to begin <laughs> a, a question and she says what is congress going to do and the nancy pelosi replies congress must act 
Yeah. Um, and the film is just replete with these kinds of things where Alexandra Pelosi just, you know, asks a question that's like not really a question. I mean, there's even worse ones where it's not even about a, an unfolding political issue. Like at one point we hear Alexandra Pelosi ask, you're impossible to crack. You're always on message. Uh, how do you do it? And a few moments later, she says her, her mother gives her the biggest platitude, the easiest to crack platitude <laughs> anyone has ever given. And Alexandra replies with something like, God, you're, you're unflappable. How how do you how do you do it <laughs> if the movie has any perspective anything to say about uh, nancy pelosi at all it's that she's a very canny pragmatist you know she's somebody on the phone she's doing the work she's a, as she says in the opening scene she's she's a workhorse not a show horse that's its perspective on her but something else that recurs is she and everyone in the movie are always invoking this very you know what what i would consider kitsch americana they're always talking they're always saying things like well you know it's a system of checks and balances and the republic for which it stands in, in the last act of the movie when you know the votes are about to be tabulated there's such reverence of like the boxes that the votes are being brought in in this sacred ritual of course after the capitol riot when nancy pelosi is giving her speech she's talking about you know the the temple of democracy is desecrated desecrated <laughs> and I'm curious on your perspective. I mean, obviously, Nancy Pelosi, and frankly, anyone at her level is going to be a little cynical. How much of that kind of corniness do you think is sincere? Well, here, I, I actually think that in a sense, liberals who uh, who exhibit this particular affectation are actually not being cynical. I think this is very sincere. I think to be a, a liberal in America, particularly today, is to nurture uh, a really kind of deep and profoundly romantic fetish for the banalities of proceedings. Uh, for institutions, not as they exist in practice, but the kind of ideals of them that exist on paper. You see that extend to all kinds of things. Something that I noticed particularly uh, as, you know, and this applies to both of us, you know, having grown up in the Bush era where, you know, there was all this kind of liberal skepticism about, you know, the state and, and you know, the national security state in particular. And during, during the Trump presidency, that really flipped. And all of a sudden, you know, the FBI and the, and the CIA were actually great. And they were part of the, the pop popular resistance to Donald Trump, etc. That's obviously just one context for this, but I think uh, I think the sentiment is is more widespread, and I think it is quite deeply felt. A particular passage comes to mind here. Uh, this is from Corey Robbins' really wonderful essay in Descent from a few years ago uh, about the Obama Nots. Um, so, I mean, obviously, the essay is a review of several different memoirs written by former Obama White House staffers. So, a certain amount of what it's saying is specifically applicable to you know this niche of American liberalism. But I think it's more widely applicable, and I also think. Obamaism has so much set the tone, you know, culturally and politically for liberalism. It's sort of defined so much of the uh, modern liberal affect that I think a lot of this is applicable sort of more generally on your question. Robin writes, Leftists often dismiss liberals and Democrats as bloodless technocrats and pallid wonks, but that's not true of the Obama knots. Theirs is a libidinal attachment, not to science, reason, or Harvard, but to an incongruous sense of history. Dopey and apocal, encyclopedic, yet uninformed. Now, the rest of this is not as relevant to your question, but it's so good that I'm going to read it anyway. Obama knots think of themselves as a storied band of brothers. They grill five-year-olds on the facts of presidential history. They speak of history lying in our hands, something that you see happen a lot in this movie, by the way. 
yet many of them know little of consequence about the past. Pfeiffer, that's Dan Pfeiffer, thinks the demand for politicians to be authentic is, quote, a new rule. But Nixon was dogged by the charge of inauthenticity all the time. Virtually all of the Obamanots are dumbfounded by the Republicans' hatred of the Affordable Care Act, even though opposition to universal health care has been a rallying cry of conservatives since Harry Truman first proposed it in 1945. But Obamanots do know that, with the exception of Harry Stassen, Obama was the first presidential candidate to campaign outside the United United States and that John Kerry's three-week trip to Jeep Vienna was, quote, the longest any Secretary of State had ever remained in any single city outside the United States in the history of the country. So again, I mean, just to quote Robin's wonderful turn of phrase a second time, a libidinal attachment, not to science, reason, or Harvard, but to an incongruous sense of history, dopey and apocal, encyclopedic, yet uninformed. I mean, I think that's very true. So here I would I would very much give the film and Nancy Pelosi credit. All these sequences where she's like in the back of a car or something being interviewed by the filmmaker, and she's sort of saying like, this is a constitutional republic. We are ruled by law, you know? I think that actually is a sincere expression of the ideology of modern liberalism, Just just as the, you know, the absence, frankly, of politics from much of the rest of the film, you know, in all but kind of the vaguest way, is also, you know, that absence is a sincere expression of modern liberal ideology as well, because the obsession with process over outcome, the fetishization of institutions over the things that those institutions achieve the reverence for institutions and processes independent of any wider political purpose or ideological project, all of those things are constitutive features, I think, of you know modern American liberalism. And I suppose, uh, by way of complimenting the film, it's something it, uh, albeit inadvertently, captures very well. All of her films reveal something, <laughs> don't they? The last third of this movie, I think, strikes a weirdly discordant note in relationship to the first two thirds. There are a lot of things I would do to make this a better film I, just looking at the raw materials here the clay i feel i could mold this into something good <laughs> maybe not good <laughs> but i think it would have worked better if this was just a documentary about january 6th if it was just at this horrible day you know the liberal 9-11 this one strong veteran held the line and stayed strong for all of us you know that's what it should have been but it, it feels strange coming at the end of this career survey that really only hits a couple of signposts and talks about one or two significant accomplishments. It also strikes a weird note because, I mean, you know, this is a hagiography. This is supposed to be about her great career, and it feels, you know, much like how Gimme Shelter feels like this sort of, like, slow dawning descent into hell uh, so Th this film is accidentally that you're right yeah and like the last act all the discontent it all builds up to this big explosion of negative energy in the last act structurally the movie feels like a chronicle of a slow failure someone comes to congress and uh slowly but surely there's this rising discontent that keeps rising and rising and rising and rising until um until this until this final blowout and you know you mentioned uh watching it it kind of feels like that line from no country for old men if if this is the <laughs> the rule you follow yeah <laughs> some people count sheep at night i count votes i cannot uh, take a bill to the floor with this in it this is you know backdoor way for something that i said we could not cross the threshold of Here's what happens in negotiations. You can't get tired. You can never get tired. Are you going to be on your best behavior tonight? Yes. 
Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you very much. I agree with you that tonally, you know, and, and you know, the pacing of the film is, uh, is a little weird. I think that's partly because it exhausts its thesis. I mean, it does actually have a perspective which is introduced, you know, very early in the film where there's just this montage of you know, Nancy Pelosi at different periods throughout her career, and then you hear different presidents being sworn in. And, you know, the implication is just... She's like the queen. Yeah, I mean, that is very much the point of view, I think. It's sort of like, there's this person who's seen it all. You know, it's it's a kind of continuity argument, really. And, you know, this is something else that I think the film, just by virtue of, you know, who made it and the perspective that inevitably uh, results in, something else that it kind of showcases about modern liberalism is just the really obsessive and sometimes, you know, all-encompassing focus on particular personalities. Again, there, there'd be a way of, you know, having a fawning or, or at least approving film about Nancy Pelosi, an admiring film about her career that nevertheless didn't quite just center her so much. I mean, this film is just a supposedly intimate portrait, although, you know, it's almost always very contrived. You know, the candid moments aren't really candid, etc. There's a lot of moments, for example, I don't think we mentioned this yet, of like Nancy Pelosi or her family, like finding out the news from CNN, which they're just watching, which like, I'm pretty sure they have like other means in like real life for finding out what's going on. But there's just this, you know, obsessive overriding focus on Nancy Pelosi as a person, her distinctive perspective on, you know, yeah, anti-war protesters are outside of the house. What, what do they want from me? Watch as, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi masterfully, you know, steers the Affordable Care Act vote to a passage in the House. And again, it's just, it's possible to imagine a different kind of film that was still about Nancy Pelosi, but was as much about the world around Nancy Pelosi, the political debates that, you know, unfolded across this very long and distinguished congressional career. And it doesn't really have any of that. You know, as we've said, there's just these kind of handful of signposts, and then it just ends with January 6th. Not mentioned, I should say, there is a little epilogues tacked on at the end, um, which was filmed on, I think, November the 17th, which was, I think, either the day Nancy Pelosi announced that she wasn't running for speaker again, or it was perhaps the day of uh, Hakeem Jeffries being sworn in as her successor, although I think that was a little bit later. Anyway, so that was filmed very recently, but not mentioned is, uh, you know, something else that happened in the interim between, you know, when the movie ends, which is basically just right after Biden was sworn in, and Pelosi's retirement, which is this absolutely horrific attack on the Pelosi home in San Francisco. And I don't know, I mean, this isn't really relevant to the film, since it's not mentioned in the film, but I didn't really feel like we could talk about the movie, we could talk about, you know, all things Pelosi without bringing this up. I mean, I think people will be aware of the, uh, the details, but uh, there are a number of things that irk me about that story. As someone who is, you know, not a fan of Nancy Pelosi politically, I mean, obviously the episode itself is completely horrific, but something that I will admit particularly bothered me was the fact that it did not draw more attention. I'm not somebody who, uh, you know, I try to uh, not think too much about the meta discourse and kind of get caught up in meta takes about the meta discourse, etc. I think that's often kind of the lowest form of, you know, the laziest form of take entrepreneurship. But in this case, I mean, it just says so much about how kind of fragmented and ephemeral the media environment is that an attack on the the home of, uh, you know, the person who's third in line to the presidency of the United States. I mean, I felt like that was basically gone from the the news in just a few days. And the other thing that I'll say about it, which I feel like is is a bit out of character for me, is that I was actually a bit disturbed, you know, again, as somebody who's who's very much against the kind of standard liberal narrative that everything that ails America can be traced back to misinformation and Fox News and the Rupert Murdoch uh, media machine or whatever it is. But I mean, for God's sake, like you saw in real time uh, in the case of this episode, 
how effective the conservative media ecosystem can be at just making shit up and then getting people to believe it. So those are just two earnest points for me that are, uh, you know, not not critical of Nancy Pelosi that I'll just enter into the record amid this kind of a sea of riffing and and, uh, criticism. Now, to turn back to the movie, there is one little Easter egg that I feel like we would be remiss to not mention. And also, I'm actually very curious if anyone listening is able to explain to us what the hell is going on here. But there is one scene. It uh, it happens so quickly, you could easily miss it. Will wound back the movie. We confirm that this is, in fact, what's going on. There's a scene where Nancy Pelosi, you know, one of the many scenes in the movie where she's just, you know, I don't know, speaking to a room full of people. And, you know, she's saying something like, you know, and this, this fight is an important fight for the general generations of, you know, the future or whatever it is. And what's striking about the scene is not what's being said, but the the background for it, because you can see she's speaking in this room with a red wall and there are three portraits on the wall. One is of Barack Obama, one is of Gandhi, and one is of Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) I just, I want to know what this room is. What is the theme that is ostensibly, it's like three trailblazers. Like what is holding this together? Is there a more complete shot of the room uh, that we can get? Does anybody know like what other portraits are held there that might, I don't know, add or more likely subtract from the level of coherence here, Uh, which is, you know, there's already a dearth of coherence. I'm not really sure what, what thread is bringing those three characters together. Well, I know we're in my home right now, but I don't think you've actually seen my bedroom. (laughs) I don't, you know, let's just, let's just put it that, let's just leave it at that. We're probably nearly ready to, uh, to close out discussion of the film here. But I mean, something that I do want to note, you know, we've, we've said again and again that this film, you know, doesn't admit, it can't admit any tension or it can't even sort of open the door to the possibility of criticism of Nancy Pelosi. But I mean, I think... It is striking, you know, particularly, you know, it was, it was really hitting me as the film is, is ending, you know, and there's this kind of epilogue as the credits are rolling where, you know, Pelosi is just saying her goodbyes as speaker and, you know, the film is uh, concluding on that note, a very predictable note. Something that really hit me watching that is just what a notably bad few years it's been for Nancy Pelosi, just in terms of, I don't know, some of the some of the reasons that she's been in the media, some of the positions that she's taken. I mean, just um, a few weeks ago, I mean, she basically in her last act as speaker, you know, helped Joe Biden uh, in collaboration with Republican leadership impose a contract on rail workers, like force these people that do absolutely essential work under absolutely brutal and indefensible conditions to go back to work without any paid sick time. There are a number of other things uh, as well. And and these were chronicled. I want to outsource this a little bit to my colleague, Bronco Marchetich, who wrote a piece uh, a few weeks ago in Jacobin called Nancy Pelosi delivered little for the left, but we might miss her anyway. And I agree with Bronco's perspective uh, that's captured there because Pelosi, I think, is it's uh, probably pretty non-controversial to say much more skilled politician and, and political operator than her successor, Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, Pelosi was at least very good at certain times of, you know, I don't know, pretending to be open to the left or, you know, uh, not openly antagonizing it when she didn't have to. You know, I think of that clip, for example, in, uh, you know, it was a media clip from sometime in 2020 during, you know, those few weeks where it looked like Bernie might actually win. And she was saying, you know, well, of course, I'd be comfortable with, you know, Bernie Sanders as our our nominee. And then you look at someone like Kim Jeffries, who's just like made such a specific cause out of antagonizing the left. You know, there was that quote from him, which was going around recently. It's just from a 
I think, a profile in The Atlantic a few years ago where he says something defective, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting things done, you know, not that far left democratic socialism or whatever. But so that's the, the thrust of Bronco's piece. But something else he does in it is, you know, he kind of documents Nancy Pelosi's career. Bronco as ever is very thorough. And I'm not going to obviously read the whole piece because it's pretty lengthy, but I want to read from a few paragraphs where, among other things, he talks about the arc of Nancy Pelosi's career and also uh, just some of the positions that she's uh, struck just recently. All of this, of course, being entirely omitted by the film and not even uh, acknowledged uh, at all. Bronco writes, Starting out as a progressive, Pelosi has steadily drifted to the center over the decades, coinciding with her rise of the party ranks, the gradual rise of her net worth, and even San Francisco's transformation into an unaffordable playground for the rich. Pelosi's image as an out-of-touch millionaire was maybe best embodied by an infamous Late Late Show segment during the early months of the pandemic, when millions of Americans faced economic uncertainty, in which she showed off her set of expensive freezers stocked with gourmet ice cream. In the wake of Democrats' underperformance in the 2020 elections, progressive groups singled out the incident as an unforced error that allowed Trump and the Republicans to paint them as, quote, the party of the swamp. Also not helping matters was Pelosi's husband's very lucrative success as a stock trader, sending her wealth soaring by $16.7 million over 2020 and an estimated $38.9 million over 2021. So skillful has the speaker's husband been at picking winners and losers on the stock market that retail traders have quite sensibly tried to get in on this action following the Pelosi's stock moves to figure out what they should buy and sell. When asked about the obvious inappropriateness of this, Pelosi explained that, quote, we are a free market economy. Congress members should be able to participate in that. Again, I mean, that's one of those moments. Actually, I, I love when liberal politicians say stuff like that because they do spend so much time being these kind of bloodless wonks and technocrats that, you know, it's like, give me some raw, uncut ideology. Like, yes, members of Congress, it's good when they trade stocks, when they own pieces of uh, the economy that they're ostensibly kind of regulating and overseeing and they profit from it. That's good. It's funny because th this is a moment where the cynicism is consistent with the corniness because it's you know she says this is a free market economy <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it, it's <laughs> yeah un unlike those you know those backwards third world economies where senior legislators are not allowed to like own pieces of Raytheon or whatever luckily in this country the founding fathers made it so that we can have freedom and and these activists want to take it away yeah this is what communism was trying to take from us folks Bronco continues, once it became an issue, the stock trading this is, and even Trump and other Republicans started hitting her for it, Pelosi eventually had to pretend to support a ban on stock trading in Congress. But the bill whose introduction she eventually oversaw introduced conveniently just days before a lengthy congressional recess that gave lawmakers little time to look at and fix it, it differed markedly from the bipartisan bill agreed on earlier, had a cruise ship-sized loophole. It prompted even one centrist Democrat to call it, quote, yet another example of why I believe the Democratic Party needs new leaders in the halls of Capitol Hill and charged that it had been, quote, designed to fail, which no one will be surprised to hear it probably was. Now it's not clear anything at all is going to pass, curtailing this obviously corrupt practice. Bronco next talks about Pelosi's uh, visit to Taiwan, which is something that Biden, I believe, pleaded with her not to do. He then continues, even some of what Pelosi herself views as her major accomplishments have been less than stellar. Pelosi boasted about besting the GOP and renegotiating NAFTA and declared the resulting agreement, quote, a victory for the American worker. 
In reality, it was 90% NAFTA, heralding some important wins for Mexican workers, to be sure, but preserving the investor-state dispute mechanism in a different form while ignoring the climate crisis and doing little for American workers in terms of bringing back jobs. There's one other paragraph here which I think is uh, significant given the role that this particular issue plays in the movie. It's one of the only genuine bona fide political issues to actually feature in the movie. Bronco writes, Pelosi's rightward drift is maybe best embodied by her turn against single-payer health care. The speaker was once upon a time a full-throated advocate for the kind of system we now tend to call Medicare for All, but by the time Pelosi reclaimed the speaker's gavel in 2019, the Earhouse Democrats introduced legislation to make it a reality, she'd become, quote, not a big fan of the idea, waved at unspecified, quote, complications, parroted right-wing talking points about the impossibility of paying for it, in turn recycled by Republicans to attack the policy, and deployed an aid to encourage health policy groups to undermine it, while assuring insurance executives they'd fight against any bill. Obamacare, she said, was, quote, a better benefit than Medicare and would lead to, quote, healthcare for all. This I don't think is in the piece, but I mean, another moment I was thinking of as the movie was coming to a close was that time where Nancy Pelosi was being asked about the Green New Deal, and she just very derisively referred to it as, you know, the Green New Dream or whatever they call it. I mean, again, would you believe that those kinds of things uh, do, do not feature in this movie? I will just reiterate one more time. It's completely possible to imagine a portrait of Nancy Pelosi that is very approving and finds a way to admit some of these things into the conversation and, I don't know, maybe even make an argument in favor of them. I mean, you can easily imagine a film that argues that Nancy Pelosi is, you know, the ultimate political pragmatist or something, but this film can't even do that because it just has to portray her as this transcendent figure who's, you know, an epoch-defining leader who is uh, more or less uh, above politics and to whom we all owe our thanks and it can't really do more than that you're always on message there's no cracking you huh well then if that's what you want to do crack your mom (laughs) yes i do i want to crack you Well, that's it for another Alexandra Pelosi documentary. If you want to hear us talk more about these, uh, we do have a few more episodes on Patreon. We should maybe create a playlist. Uh, if you're not subscribed <laughs> to our Patreon, you can... Uh, you you can, can follow the slow descent into madness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash Us. Uh, you can also check out Will Sloan's first ever byline in Jacobin Magazine with probably the longest and most uh, informed write-up of the cinema of Alexandra Pelosi uh, that anyone's ever done uh, look out for it now watch this drive speaker of the house nancy pelosi and senate democratic leader chuck schumer please Stephen, we're friends just call us chuck and speaker of the house nancy okay uh, so what are you guys doing here we figured your little get-together needed us uh why, why is that because we're, we're the, the party, party leaders, leaders. ready 